The following audio is from LifePoint Church, located in O'Fallon, Missouri. For more information about LifePoint Church, visit us online at thelifepointconnection.com. All right, let's go. Uh, If you've got your Bibles, let's go to Galatians chapter 6. Uh, If you need a Bible, we've got some in the back for you. Just go ahead and raise your hand on up and we'll have those Bibles coming around to you. Uh, If you're a first-time guest here, let me just welcome you to LifePoint Church. Uh, My name's Eric. Uh, I'm the lead pastor here, and we started this church just over a year and a half ago. Uh, And and our prayer is that God would do something, not just in this room uh, corporately, but rather also in your life. And so I'm glad that you're here. Uh, I'm glad that you're uh, a part of what God is doing. But I would pray uh, that God would just touch your heart today. So uh, thanks for that. Galatians chapter 6. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been moved by God? I think some of us would say yes. Have you ever been have you ever moved by God to that place that it brings you to uh, almost a crossroads or an intersection in your life where where you where 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 you really have to examine your life? Do, Do you know that place I'm talking about? That, that place where something sits on you. I mean, you can call it whatever you want. You can call it the weight of the world. You can call it stresses of life. You can call it a, a bunch of different things. But there's these things that happen in our life that, that presses on us, that moves on us, that gets us to that place where we have to start examining our lives. Have, have you ever been there? Have you ever experienced that moment, that moment where you begin to ask the question like, what am I, what am I doing? What is, what is, what is my life about? What, where am I going? What is, what is this whole thing about? Have you ever been moved to that moment? Because I will tell you that I firmly, truly, with all of my heart, believe that that moment that God is just kind of pressing on your life to bring you to that place where you begin to examine your life is really God's grace on you. I don't know if you ever realize that or ever think about it that way, but that that time that God begins to press on your life and move you into a place where you say, what's going on? That is absolutely God's loving grace to bring you to that place. And let me tell you why I think that. It's because Romans 1 would say that the wrath of God is poured out upon all unrighteousness, really by just letting you run and letting you chase and letting you pursue all the things of this world, when in the end, all the things of these world will never satisfy you. And so if that is God's, God's wrath upon us, then it must be God's grace to just let us slow down and look around and say, what's going on with this? And so it must be God's grace when he presses on you. Sometimes we feel desperate. Sometimes we feel uh, uh, out of whack. Sometimes we just feel depressed. And I don't know where you're feeling, but, but here's the deal. I believe that it's God's grace to bring you to a point where you just say, what's going on with my life? Where am I at in my life? Some people would say, well, you know, God's wrath is tsunamis and tornadoes and sickness. No, no, no. God's wrath is letting you chase everything of this world and never slowing you down and grabbing hold of your heart and saying, hey, that will never satisfy you. And so I believe if you've ever been brought to that moment, or maybe today is that moment, that is absolutely God's grace. Um, I know that I 
if, if you've been here for a while. I, I know that I can be somewhat of a motivator because I get really excited about some stuff. You know, you've ever experienced that? You know, you can tell my voice gets a little loud and, and I get really amped up. And so I know, I know that I can be a motivator. All right. Can we agree on that? So in, in some capacity, I know I have this ability to motivate, but here, let me ask you this on my best day, my best day. All right. I mean, I'm up here and I am going and, and I'm getting excited and, and you can see the passion coming out and, and on my best day, I mean, I'm funny. I'm making you laugh a little bit, you know, and, and I'm making you cry a little bit. You know, those are two great emotions that we love. And so, oh, he's making me cry. He's making me laugh. And, and I'm telling jokes and everything's really good. And you, you are sitting there and you're just simply moved, man. I mean, you're, you're compelled on my best day. I mean, my face is shining like Moses, right? And you're, you're just, oh yes. How long does that last? On my best day, does it make it out of the room? Does it make it to the parking lot? Maybe past lunch? Probably not. I'm not offended. I'm aware of this, right? I mean, on my best day, the best may make it to Tuesday. I mean, really. And so, and so here's the deal is, is I know that I can, I can be moved. You can be moved to this embetterment, this motivation to this thing that says I'm in, I'm going to do that. But here's the problem is that it doesn't last. Does it? I tell you that problem has been compounded with the fact that the majority of people don't understand what salvation is. I think it's been compounded with the fact that people don't really understand what's going on in that moment where we're moved and compelled. And so it, it just simply doesn't last. And, and Eric, how, do, how can you say that people don't understand? Well, I, because I have conversations with people. That's, how, that's why I believe that. Have you ever had conversations with people? I mean, people who would profess they're Christians or profess that they go to church or profess that they know Christ. I have these conversations and ask them, hey, what's your relationship with Jesus like? And the answers of the response, man, they're all over the board. I mean, they are all over the map globally. They're just crazy. I mean, what's your relationship with Jesus like? Some people will say, well, my mom's a Christian. And so I'm a Christian. I grew up in church from a little kid. I went to that little Baptist church, that little white one right on the corner from our house. That's, that's what I did. And so, and so when I ask you about your relationship with Christ, you say, well, I grew up in church or my mom was a Christian. Or, I grew up in that. Okay. Or, or a very popular one is this idea of tell me your relationship with Jesus. And people would say, well, you know, uh, salvation and being right with God, being justified before God really has, has nothing to do with this or that. As long as you're sincere and which is growing popularity in our culture. It doesn't matter what you believe. You could believe this. You could believe that. You could believe all these things. As long, as long as you're sincere about it, I think God will honor your sincerity. Okay? Or, or how about this one? Tell me about your relationship with Jesus. Well, I've given up all my bad habits. You ever heard that? 
Well, I used to do this, and now I don't do this. I used to do this, now I don't do this. I do this, I don't do that. And so, so really, I've cleaned myself up. I've, I stopped drinking, I stopped cussing, I stopped uh, doing all these things. And so, so that's my relationship with Jesus. So somehow, that salvation revolves around an inherited, my mom was a Christian, so am I. Or this idea of embitterment or morality or salvation then revolves around sincerity. Or, or my favorite, it's this resume idea. Ever heard that? Tell me about your relationship with Jesus. Man, I haven't missed church in five years. What? Yeah, five years. I've, I've not missed a service. I serve, I give, I do these things. And, and you know what? I have still the record in the kids' classroom for the sticker chart, right? For attendance. 800 days without a miss. And look, I have the most Bible verses memorized. Have you seen my sticker chart? And it's like, it's like we stand before God saying... Uh, I don't even, I don't even need to get an account. You've seen my chart, right? Or I've gone to Bible school. Hmm. Seminary. Huh? Huh? And so we have this resume that somehow this resume idea, all these lists, all these things that we've done, somehow that equates Justification, right? Standing before God. Salvation. Or, or depending on how backwoods you are, I like to call it the, the good old boy mentality, where you're just, well, it'll work itself out. So where, where are you at with God? Oh, you know, it'll, it, you know I'll, I'm not worried about that. It, it'll work itself out. I'll do more good than I'll do bad. And I'll just kind of come on that last day. You know what I'm saying? And, and you know, I, I'm not really worried about it. These are people that go to church, that call themselves Christians, that says, I'm a believer in Christ. And so I hear all these things about what equates salvation. And the problem with it is none of it is biblical salvation. None of it has any merit or understanding. And so, and so I want to show you that it's, that it's not a new problem. And so today I want to kind of address the problem and tell you what gospel-centered salvation is. So go to Galatians 6. Let me show you this. <clears throat> kind of a funny v- verse. You'll see what I mean in a minute. Uh, Galatians 6, verse 11. Paul says... See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. Now, I would love to have seen the original uh, transcript of that because uh, for us, we'd be typing and we're like bolding this or italicizing this or making it 44 font or whatever. But he's writing this with his hand. So he's writing this book to the Galatians. And then all of a sudden he says, see how big I'm writing here, right? And so it must be important. So Galatians 6, he says, see with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. And only in order that they may be not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, 
But they desire to have you circumcised so that you for so that they may boast in your flesh. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither, listen to this, circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And so this is what's happening here. These people were coming to the church or coming in to know, and and there's these Jews, and the religious party would say, in order for you Gentiles to become a Christ follower, you must first become a Jew. That's, That's what it's talking about. That's what it's addressing. And so in order for you to follow Jesus, you must first do these things. You must first become a Jew. So now salvation, according to this, they're saying, hey, uh, it's not about the cross of Christ. It's not about the atoning work of Christ. It's not about the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ. You must first do these things. Then you can partake in Christ. You see that's happening. And so he says, no, no, no. It's not this or that it's only a new creation which justifies you before God. So gospel-centered salvation, I would say, is only comes through the cross of Jesus Christ, knowing that every one of us has been hopelessly separated by God. Through the ways that we think, through the things that we do, through the things that we don't do, things that we say, separated from God. And if that's not bad enough, there is no way that you and I can work hard enough, can make up for, can uh, are unable, we're unwilling, we're incapable in any facet of our life to put back together that's what's broken. And so, so you and I are broken hopelessly before God and there's nothing that we can do to fix it. And so we need a savior. And so we need help to the perfect Holy, right, living, perfect life of Jesus Christ. He paid the death price that you and I deserve to pay. And that's what we just sang about, the ransom. We've been ransomed back to God. Now, that was not a free ransom. There was a price to be paid. The price was death. Jesus paid it on our behalf so that we could know God. And so you and I are hopelessly in an in a awkward situation before God because we're all guilty. And so we need a Savior. We need Christ. And salvation does not come through some type of law, some type of works, some type of uh, atonement of ourselves. But rather, it only comes through Jesus Christ. The work is not of our own. It's only of Christ. And so here's what I want to do. I want to biblically... Look at some myths revolving salvation. Some myths that some people believe this is what equates salvation or just right standing before God. Are you with me? And then I want to look at what biblical gospel-centered salvation really is. And so that's, that's our task today. And let me tell you, let me tell you why this is so passionate for me. 
is because so many of us have been have been brought into an understanding of salvation that has no relevancy in our life. I hope that through this understanding salvation, it would leave us begging and asking and pleading with God to do something in our hearts. Because what happens is all across America is millions and millions and millions and millions of people have an assurance and a hope that they should not possess. Because a pastor said, hey, raise your hand. Hey, come down front. Hey, do this prayer. And we've equated salvation with some sort of some chanting of some sinner's prayer that somehow, just because I repeated after you, that somehow in that I'm right before God. And so we've created millions of so-called Christians that should not have a, a confidence in their salvation. And it is God's grace that would lead us to that moment where we begin to stop and ask ourselves, where am I at with you, God? Where am I at with you? And so, many people have no relationship, just mere church attendance. They went to a camp or some type of conference or some type of church setting like this and made a response and then that was the end. And so Matthew 7, 22, it says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that should scare up, that should frighten me. That still keeps me up sometimes. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never Knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so, so many people have a confidence in their salvation that they shouldn't possess because they'll stand before God and say, didn't we do this? Haven't you seen my sticker chart? Haven't you seen the things that I've done? And Jesus says, yeah, but I don't know you. And so it is God's grace that would lead us to a place to ask the question, do I know God? Do I know Christ? And so let's talk about some myths first. Can we do that first? Let's talk about some myths first. Myth number one. Myth number one revolving around salvation is there is a myth that salvation revolves around knowledge. And so there's a knowledge that says, okay, well, if I know God, then I, I have knowledge of him. And we must know Christ, and we must be able to talk about Christ, and we be able to look like the people in the church. And although, follow me, there will be an increase in knowledge, knowledge doesn't necessarily equate salvation. Romans 1.32. It says, though they know God's righteous decree. So here's the deal. They know what God wants. They know what God desires. They know the things of God. They know what to say, what not to say, how to act, how not to act. That those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So here's, here's the picture that he's painting. 
There are those who can come and sit down with you over a cup of coffee. There's those who can come and sit down with you over lunch. And there's those who can come and sit down with you and begin to discuss the things of God. What God desires, what God wants, how God operates, who God is. Yet there's no fruit. There's no life. No life. So a mere knowledge does not equate salvation. You can know the ordinances, you can know the things of God, but not know God. Because James 2.19, a very popular text, shoot that one up there. It says, for you believe that God is one and you do well. But even the demons believe and shudder. Every time Jesus shows up where someone who's demon-possessed, they know exactly who he is. Every time. And they say, oh, please don't kill us. Don't, is it, is it, this is not the time. I thought, I thought we had more time. Are you going to condemn us already? They knew exactly who Jesus was every time. And so just because you have a knowledge of Jesus or a knowledge of who God is, that doesn't necessarily equate salvation. Are you, are you with me? And so we cannot say salvation must revolve around knowledge. Here's the second myth. Okay. Well, if knowledge is not enough for salvation, then maybe, maybe it's knowledge plus approval. Maybe it's not only I know the things of God, but rather I like them. Maybe that is what salvation is. And so the the Bible is going to have some troubles with that. I want you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3, because I want you to see this. John chapter 3, verse 1. John chapter 3, verse 1 says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. If you know anything about the Pharisees, the Pharisees are the religious party, the religious leaders. And so the Pharisee would probably, uh, if he's a part of the religious party, would probably do things outwardly very well. Outwardly, they've got it, right? They're doing it. They look the part. They act the part. They say the part. They're Pharisees. There's a man who does very well following the religious ordinances. He's a ruler of the Jews. That tells me he's probably doing pretty good outwardly. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, teacher, good teacher, we know that you are a teacher come from God. So there is the cognitive understanding right there. I know that you're a good teacher. And I know with my mouth that you have come from God. I'm acknowledging that. For no one can do these signs unless God is with them. So not only do I believe I'm coming to you for some answers. I believe you have the answers. I believe you're from God. Jesus answered him and said, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see The kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, well, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? I don't get it. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh and that born of the spirit That's a capital S. Holy Spirit is 
spirit. Do not marvel at what I said to you. You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Verse nine is key. And Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? So Nicodemus comes outwardly right, asking Jesus, how How am I saved? How am I right before God? And God says, Jesus says, you need to be born again. How can that be? And Nicodemus is not converted. He's not saved. He walks away baffled. He doesn't get it. And so here's a man who outwardly does good, who has a cognitive understanding and verbally attests that this guy is from God. Yet he's not saved. He's not converted. And so the question is, dear Lord, then what, what salvation then? I mean, okay, Eric, help, help me out. What, what occurs in salvation? Well, let me, let me clear it for you because you need to understand that salvation is justification or right standing before God is an act of God and God alone. Now hear me. Salvation, how you are born again, it must be an act of God and it must be of God alone. Salvation begins, salvation sustained, and salvation is consummated by God and God alone. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. And so he who started the work will see it to completion. It must be done, started, consumed. Everything is done by God. And so there is a call that goes out by God into the souls of people. Not a call by me. Not a call by pastors. Not a call by preachers. Not a call by parents. Although I will call to you, I will give you the gospel call. And although my call goes out to you, some of you will say, no, thank you. And some of you will be motivated. But the gospel call is the one that I give. The God, new birth, new life call of God sinks into your heart. And that is the start of salvation. His call is effective. His call is deep. His call lasts forever and you cannot shake it. It's why we can come in here, be motivated by the gospel call and say, I'm in and then leave out of here and then nothing happens. Because what you're doing is you're responding to my call and you're not really hearing the call of God upon your life and says, this is my call. You are mine. And God calls to some and cuts to your heart. And some people can't help but say, amen. And so there's times where I will say, come to Christ. And some will respond in that moment. And some will say, no, thank you. But God, when he calls to you, you can't outrun it. You can't shake it. It's a done deal. Eric, are you saying that God 
uh, forces people to love him? That's not what I'm saying. That's, that's horrible theology. What I'm saying is that God is so beautiful. He's so wonderful. He's so magnificent. He's so He's so majestic that that whenever he unveils himself or reveals himself to you, takes the veil off your eyes so that you can see the glory of God, it's over, man. Because nobody sees God and says, you know what, that's great, but I'd rather have this. You don't do that. He doesn't do that. He's He's better than anything you've ever seen, anything you've ever known, anything you've ever tasted. And when you see with an unveiled face the glory of Jesus Christ, you're saying... I, 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 I'm, I'm yours. It's over. It's, you don't want anything else. In that moment, John six sixty five. he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And so that's why we pray here over and over and over and over again. God, open the eyes of our hearts. God, unveil our faces. God, will you do something in my heart? Will you let me see you? Because, because God, without you opening my heart, I can't come because you have to allow me to come. You have to show yourself to me. So many people think that we're pursuing God. And I w- I'm telling you that God, God is the one that pursues us. God is the one that grabs hold of your soul. God is the one that makes himself known and says, you're mine. Now, look in Romans 8. I want you to turn there because you've got to see this one too. Some of you are saying, well, I like the idea that I play a part in this. Well, the Bible would say that it's by grace you're saved so that no man can boast. We boast only in the cross, only in Christ. He did the work. I'm going to show you this, Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. We love that verse. We stop a little short. Verse 29 says, For those whom he foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, predetermined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. That's the right standing before God. He calls, he determines, he grabs hold of you. He justifies you. And those whom he justified, he also Glorified. So right there you have God pursuing us. You have God grabbing hold of us. God making us right before God, not for any works that we've done, but because he grabs hold of our lives. Which means from the moment that you were born... God has placed people, God has placed circumstances, God has placed uh, things around you to begin to draw you unto himself. I was not grabbed hold of to by God until I, I was 21 years old. 
But I can see, looking back, that there were things that were wooing me, things he was protecting me from, things that he didn't allow me to get into, things that he did allow me to get into, right? And he, I could see his hand working, and then in that moment, he unveiled himself to me, he grabbed hold of my heart, and I was completely his. And so from the moment you were born, God works, God orchestrates, God writes this poetry, this story of your life and says, I'm going to woo you, I'm going to romance you, I'm going to draw you, I'm going to allow some pain over here, and I'm going to bring you to myself. And so it's absolutely the call of God. Now let me tell you why that gives me hope. Hear me. Because if it's true that God is the one that completely saves, God can't fail. That's why it gives me hope. God can't fail. If it's true that he's the one who grabbed me, if he's the one, it says, no one can take you out of my hand. No one can rip you out of my father's hand. And if he is the one that truly justifies, if he is the one that calls me to himself, it gives me hope because he can't fail me. I've been saved by Christ. Salvation is not, is, is not me working something out. It's him grabbing hold of my life, his sovereign hand around my heart, and he has got me. Let me ask you, are you thinking... That you're more powerful than God. If this is true, that God absolutely grabs holy, seals you with the Holy Spirit, says, You are absolutely mine. Are you thinking you could somehow wiggle your way out of that grabbing? Are you saying that you're the ace card in the deck that trumps God's hand around your heart? Is that what you're saying? You should be in Romans 8. Look, look in verse 31. Those of me predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. Verse 31, what shall we say to these things? If that's true, if God is for us, who can be against us? What's going to happen? He who did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who should bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Not tribulation, not distress, not persecution, not famine, not nakedness, not danger, nor sword, as it is written. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We regard as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor rulers, nor angels, nor nor present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation. And I will add, not even you will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That brings me so much hope. If I'm truly his, I'm truly his. If I'm absolutely his, there's nothing that can separate me from that. 
not even myself. And so the question is not, can you lose your salvation? The question is, are you really saved? Have you been motivated by me? Or has your heart been grabbed by God? Because if you're motivated by me, it will end in the parking lot. But if you're motivated by God, if he grabs hold of your heart, he can't shake it. He can't shake it. You cannot survive your walk with Christ on someone else's motivation. Although the call may be corporate, it must be your faith. You cannot survive your faith on your mother's faith, on your father's faith, on your youth pastor's faith, on my faith. You can't survive your walk with Christ on someone else's faith. Although it's very corporate, it's very personal for you. So what happens in that moment when God grabs hold of your heart and absolutely saves you? What happens in that moment is that when Christ calls, when Christ saves, when Christ brings you to himself, there may not be a whole lot of theological understanding. There may not be. Probably won't be. But there is a passion for Christ. When you're born again, When there's a new life, there's a passion for Christ. When you are in Christ, your heart will be flowing the things of Christ. You can't shake it. John 7, 37. Shoot that one up there. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers. Of living water. If you're a new creation. If you're a son and a daughter. There will be a passion. That begins to spring up. Out of your heart for Christ. Maybe you don't understand it. Maybe you don't don't get it. I remember. I, I didn't know anything. I didn't know. I didn't know anything from anything. I just know that I was blind. And now I see. I don't know. I was sick, but then he made me well. I was dead, and he made me alive. That's all I know. And there was a passion to say, there is life in Christ, and I've got to have him. I've got to know him. I want him. I don't know a whole lot of theological stuff. I just know I need him. I want him. And there's a passion that grows living water out of your life. And I will tell you that where there is an indifference to Christ, where you can just say, eh, take it or leave it, Where there is an indifference to grace, you may be revealing that there is no Christ in your life. There is no grace in your life. If you can be indifferent to the fact that you were dead and he grabbed hold of your heart and made you alive, and you say, oh, that's cool. Where are we going to eat? You 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 probably don't get it. You're probably just motivated by me. So where there's indifference to Christ, you're probably revealing there is no Christ. Have you ever noticed that wherever Christ is, there's a commotion? Ever realize that? Wherever Christ goes, wherever Jesus goes, havoc breaks out. Ever seen that? Right? 
I mean, he goes into a town. People are wanting to either kill him or make him king, right? Some guys come in and like, I got to climb this tree. I got to see him. So the wee little man, he climbs up the tree and he's like, I need to see Jesus. Wherever Jesus is, there's crowds, there's people. They're like, I've got to see him. Some people run around the lake. He gets in a boat. He goes to the other side of the lake. They're running around the lake because they've got to get to him. Some people are just like, oh man, we need to kill this guy. We need to stop. But it doesn't, whether you, whether you want to kill him or whether you want to make him king, there, there can't be indifference. Wherever Jesus is, there's a commotion. And if Jesus is in your life, there's got to be something that comes up. And if there's no commotion, then the question is, is Jesus even there? Biblical salvation is the fact that when Jesus comes into a man or when a Jesus comes into a woman, there's going to be something, some type of passion, some type of something that says, oh, he's better than life. I'll tell you that when Jesus calls you to himself in that moment, faith and repentance collide. Faith that he is, faith that he can, faith that he will, faith that he's better, and repentance, the fact that you need him, you want to trust him, they collide and salvation begins to take root in your heart. Faith and repentance is not something that we do at the beginning It's something that is done through our entire walk with Jesus Christ. Faith, I need to trust him more. I need to trust him more. I need to trust him more. I repent. I've made this thing my idol. I made this thing my king. I'm searching for this. And so faith and repentance will begin to grow all the days of your life. As you begin to see God's holiness and you begin to see the depths of your sinfulness, the cross gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and we can't help but worship Jesus. And so faith comes in and a love for Christ begins to grow. Now listen to me. It's not a love based on circumstances. We just just don't love because of what he gives us. We love because he's more beautiful than anything. We don't love him because of what I can get out of it, but rather I've just seen him, I've tasted him, and he's he's better, he's greater, he's bigger, he's stronger, and I love Jesus. It's not I love Jesus because it's I love Jesus. That's what happens. And so although we do love Jesus because the riches and the depths of his mercy are never-ending, But here's the deal. It doesn't matter what follows that because. Paul says, I've been hungry. I've been sick. I've been well fed. And I've been healthy. I've been beaten up. I've been imprisoned. And I've been set free. Praise God. We don't love Jesus, because, but we've experienced and we know in our heart that he's better. 
than any circumstance that could come. And so gospel-centered salvation is not built around God's gifts, but rather a love for God. And it begins to grow this knowing, this increasing presence of God. And God is what we get. Hear me. Forgiveness of sin leads you to knowing God. If it stops with forgiveness, then you stop short of the good news. Guilt removed, shame removed, leads you to knowing God. If you stop here, it's not the full gospel. It leads you into the presence of God. Jesus is what we get. And so where does that leave us? I'm glad you asked. Leaves us wrestling. Leaves us asking the question. Where am I at? Do I know Christ? Has he grabbed hold of my heart? Have I responded to a man or have I responded to God? Have I been moved in my soul? Where am I? At. It is God's grace that would lead you into the point where you say, where am I at? Second Corinthians 13, 5. It says, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. Or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you? That's the test. That's, that's the key. Jesus Christ in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. The question is, Christ, are you in me? Now, here's what happens when we begin to wrestle this, when we begin to examine this, when we begin to press on this. You can't have somebody else do that for you. You can't look outwardly and say, outwardly, you're a good girl. Outwardly, you're a good guy. Outwardly, you can't have somebody. You need to wrestle with God and say, God, where am I at with you? Now, this will do two things for you. This wrestling, this examining will either, through the Holy Spirit, lead you into a confidence and an assurance that you truly are in Christ. That he is yours and you are his. And through this wrestling, it will lead to a greater assurance, which will lead to worship. That's the first thing that could happen. Or the second thing that happens is that through the Holy Spirit, you're wrestling, you're examining, he will reveal to you that you don't know Christ and give you grace and forgiveness and say, come to me now. And it will lead to forgiveness, which will lead to an assurance which grows into worship. We must Examine where we are in fear that you'd be motivated by me and not grab hold of by God. Let's pray. Jesus, it scares me to think that some may have an assurance that 
you're not confident about. Jesus, today I ask that you would, like your word says, open our hearts. You would open our minds. That you would, through your Holy Spirit, press on us. That we would truly, by your grace, begin to stop for long enough to ask the question, Jesus. Holy Spirit, please. I ask for those who who need some reassurance through the Holy Spirit that you are you are the sealer and the guarantor of our faith. And today we would hear your voice. result in an overwhelming passion and overwhelming worship for you. And Jesus, today, send your Holy Spirit to grab hold of those who have fallen in the trap of easy believism, who've thought that just because they know something or they know and approve that somehow, somewhere they're right with you. But God, I pray that you will bring about faith and repentance. Free us of guilt and shame so that we would know you. We want to be a church Jesus.